0: Welcome to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler share with you the pathway to becoming a top leader in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler.
1: Welcome to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers. I'm Dr. Relly Nadler, Dr. Kathy Greenberg. My esteemed co-host for the last 18 years is here uh, today. We have just been recently uh, listed under Feedspot uh, Feedspot as the number one ranking in leadership development. And so between Kathy and I, we've helped thousands of leaders to perform in the top 10%. We always wanna bring you people who can help you, authors, gurus, to perform in that top 10%. Are there a few things that you could do more of? Or are there a few things that you could do less of? Tips, tools, hacks that can help you be in the top ten percent. So, Kat, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Relly. I am really excited for today's show, more so than usual. Uh, it looks like I'm going to have uh, a kindred spirit from my my hometown in Philadelphia with us today, which is always fun because I always think when they're talking behind the scenes, you know, all the people we must know. And in addition to that, uh, congratulations to us. We now have, uh, I guess we're now in 58 countries with over 5 million followers, uh, and listeners. And, uh, it, it, doesn't really get any better than that, so uh, I'm really, really, <laughs> I'm a little speechless at the moment, um, but like you said well, last, yeah. last time, right, it, it's, it's, it's tenure, when you do this for 18 years, right, you, you get a little better at it each
1: time. Yeah, yeah, well, and we're kind of the old guard now, because uh, Cat, Kat, when you and I started, it was a radio show, so now it's a podcast, and so even the terms have uh, are different, um, well, it's funny you say old
2: guard. Yeah, I just I say OG, like I'm an old gangster. I'm an old. gangster. That's true. You're
1: always kind of feisty, so that's what's good. I think that that gangster part is kind of why we're you know thriving in what we do and keep and keep marching forward. So, when you think about what we're going to talk about today. Interviewology, the new science of interviewing. And there's so many ways and places that people are interviewing um, to learn some top skills. So let me just share a little bit that we have about Anna Papalia, and she is the author. The book is called Interviewology, the new science of interviewing and a career influencer with 1.5 million followers across social media. She's consulted with a lot of Fortune 100 companies. She's taught at Temple, Fox School of Business, and she's coached over 10,000 clients to interview better. I think Kat, this is gonna help you and I, even though we've been doing it for 18 years, we probably could interview even better. And her groundbreaking discovery of interview styles revolutionize the way we teach and understand interviewing, and she's also a public speaker uh, and lives, as you said, in Philadelphia. So I'm curious, uh, Once, let's bring her on, and maybe she can tell us what our style is.
2: Well, Anna, um, welcome, Anna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I have been uh, binging uh, on your Instagrams, and uh, I, I can't wait to jump into this. We always like to start off with a little bit about about who you are and um, some really compelling history there. Tell us a little bit about who were your major influences.
3: Sure. So I opened my, my book, Interviewology, The New Science of Interviewing, with a bit of a story and some background because I thought my book might be pretty boring if I just, you know, <laughs> stuck to interviewing advice. And I told the story of um, having to move out at 15 to escape my abusive stepfather and my, my mm-hmm. grandfather, who was so special to me in my life and probably the most influential person in my life, um, was wonderful and really sort of saved me. And I, I lived with my grandparents for a year after moving out. But then unfortunately, he had a massive stroke when I was a, a mm-hmm. sophomore in high school And it it pushed me out of the nest yet again, and I ended up spending some time with some friends. And then my entire senior year of high school, I lived on my own and paid rent and worked. And I told that story in the opening of my book, and I also told that story in my admissions interview at the University of Pennsylvania, not because I wanted to pull on their heartstrings, because I was really ashamed of it, but because I wanted to explain why my SAT scores weren't as great as my competition and why I didn't play sports because I was doing other things. You know, I had to work and, and pay rent and the admissions officer, I'll never forget it, looked at me and said, well, Ms. Papalia, you have a tough decision to make. You could wait for the letter or I can accept you on the spot. And I chose for him to accept me on the spot because I was pretty sure he was going to change his mind if I left um so there were some very influential figures in my early life and, and i tell um those stories in the first chapter of my book
1: so that's beautiful this, very very yeah, very, touching. It's very ahead, yeah, yeah thank you so just having to uh do all that uh on your own some of the things that i'm sure we'll get into you know is that sense of re- resilience and you know tell me tell me a time when you had to deal with adversity well so you got a, a bunch already in your book um but until now we haven't had this standard standardized language to talk about interviews so how does interviewology provide the much needed language for understanding the interview process and maybe say a little more how do you even get into wanting to have that as your focus interviewing
3: sure Yes. Yeah, so i Got into the University of Pennsylvania, I studied psychology, I thought I wanted to be a therapist or a psychiatrist or a doctor of some sort and save the world, and I had an internship in behavioral health, and I realized that I hated it, and it was not for me, and I used to tell my college students all the time, uh, having an internship that you hate is probably one of the best things for your career direction, and for me, I realized I wanted to be more in the corporate world. So I started in HR and I was like the worst HR generalist ever. I should have been hired, fired. I was making so many mistakes because I just really was not good at the job. And when the corporate recruiter came over and put a pile of resumes on my desk and said, could you help me, you know, call these candidates? She was just overwhelmed. And I was thinking to myself, you're going to pay me to talk to people? Yeah, I can do that all day long. And it was love at first sight. I absolutely fell in love with recruiting. It was this intersection of, in my mind, sort of behavioral health and the internships that I had had. Um, but in the corporate world and organizational development and making a fit, which was I was always very good at, being sort of this detective, getting to know hiring managers and then going out into the world and finding that right fit for them. Hmm. So I spent 10 years as a contingent recruiter and then ultimately I left as a director of talent acquisition. And when I was in my last role, I had had some big light bulb moments and insightful moments. You know, why as hiring managers are we, are we always blaming the job seekers for being the unprepared ones? When my experience, a lot of the hiring managers were unprepared. And I left in 2011 to start my own business. I, I quit my job. I told the president that I was resigning to start my own company to teach people how to interview better. And I didn't have a business plan. All I had was this passion and this dream. And he told me that I had Moxie. And that's just about all I had, <laughs> literally. Okay. I, and um, one of the first clients I, I got was the dean of... Uh, uh, Temple University's Fox School of Business because I had hired all of the interns um, at, at my old firm from that program. And the dean said, you know what they're doing right and wrong. Come and teach them. And so for the first five years, I was very cocky. I thought, I know what it means. I know how you get hired. I know what you need to do. You should do it like me. I got into my college interview. I know how to interview. I was the gatekeeper. I have all the used to have all the power. I used to hire all you kids. Do what I say do exactly what i say and i had this cocky instinct and it was about year 5 and 6 where i i had my first child and having children opens you up to you know maybe i'm not the only one doing this the right way and i looked at my students and some of them were really struggling with the material and i wondered you know why are some of these students not understanding this and i had this really deep aha light bulb moment i thought to myself Why are we giving this type of advice? Why do we tell people to memorize these certain answers? This is not really how it works. What if we don't all do this the same way? What if we interview differently? And so I collected a bunch of research and I wrote a personality assessment. And I figured if I could figure out how people are in an interview, I can give them customized Mm -hmm. advice. That's better for them rather than the way it has historically gone where all these books just tell you what to say, which is, this is crazy for a minute. Imagine if you're given advice in any other area in your life and people are like, tell them what they want to (laughs) hear. You just want to get your foot in the door, just memorize these perfect answers. It's crazy. It's totally insane. So I started looking at it from a different perspective. What I found is my students that were performing really well in interviews were the ones that knew themselves Self-awareness turned out to be the marker of success, and it wasn't. And then, of course, I had this cocky instinct. I thought, well, I'm going to discover interview styles, and I'm going to figure, of course, it's my style. I mean, I'm great at interviewing, so I'm going to discover there's one perfect style. But I'm so glad that I was very wrong. My hypothesis was completely false. What I found after collecting all this research and comparing it, you know, I collected all this research with my students and I compared all the numbers of internship offers and full-time offers, and there wasn't one interview style that was getting all the offers. And what I found is that we all have an equal chance and capability of nailing the job interview. The problem isn't trying to pretend to be that right, run right perfect interview style. It's instead knowing who we are showing up authentically as ourselves, as both hiring managers and job seekers. And that, to me, was the click. So I wrote this personality assessment so my clients, job seekers and hiring managers, could get to know themselves better. And that is the solution to interviewing. It's understanding, are you a charmer, challenger, examiner, or harmonizer in job interviews? And knowing that helps you interview better as a hiring manager. It helps you understand your biases in the same way that I now can better understand my biases. And what I discovered ultimately in collecting this research and writing this book and growing my social media platform is that the the really the right way to do this is obviously to be authentic, show up as yourself. But in addition to that, it's really being curious and open-minded which is not the training we usually give people when it comes to interviewing.
2: So, and I was looking at your Instagram, um, which is really helpful. And data that I came across when I was with Accenture, um, which is a global company, seems to be consistent in today's operating environment for corporate America and HR. 20% of uh, current generational, uh, I'll just say, interviewees are actually <laughs> um, relying on their parents in a part of the interview, which sometimes means they're actually bringing their parents into the interview, whether it's virtually, you know, or having them wait for them. Talk, talk a little bit about this um, I I just find it fascinating before we, you know, get into some of the other um, kind of structured questions that we have. There was a
3: report out a couple weeks ago, and I did a TikTok about this, that there's 20% of of Gen Zs who are actually bringing their parents with them to the interview process. It's a very small percentage of the Gen Z generation, so I don't want to, you know, say that all Gen Zers are like this um but i made a video about this explaining why this happened and it's it's simply because people aren't being taught how to interview You know, these parents are Mm. sending their children to schools. Colleges cost, you know, a half a million dollars. Their students, their children come home. They're living in their basements or they're living back in their childhood rooms. The parents are frustrated. They just spent a half a million dollars on college and they're wondering why the heck can't my kid get a, get a job? So they take it into their own hands. They micromanage it. They're helicopter parents and they call companies or they apply for their, their children. Or if their child says they have an interview coming up, the parents are insisting on going with them to these interviews to, quote-unquote, help them, which I don't agree is helpful. I've taught thousands of people how to interview better. That's not how you get good at interviewing. You have to allow people to make mistakes. That's how you learn. But this is something that has happened. In fact, when I posted that video, there were lots of people in the comments saying, my mom did this. There were lots of hiring managers saying, I've interviewed people with their parents present which is yeah. crazy. It's, it's hard Absolutely. to believe, but it's, it has hap- It is happening. Not a lot. It's only about 20%, um, but that's the cultural reason it's happening. Colleges are really expensive, but they're not giving interview skills. You know, the program that I taught at Temple is, is in the minority and parents are frustrated. And so that's why it's happening.
2: I have so many Yeah. Questions. So I can see
1: how, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that, that research. And, and, uh, and maybe your book is helping the parents being better interviewees. (laughs) So with that, Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit about uh, that your experience you had at a restaurant in college. And it sounds like that's something that's really helped you maybe tap on to interviewing and then we'll get into your four styles.
3: Sure. Well, like, All of our first jobs are really formative experiences, and I write about this in my book. You know, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, I had to put myself through school. So I waited tables for Steven Starr, who is now a very famous restaurateur, but back in the day, I think it was his fifth restaurant, and it was really the place to be. It was a really awesome job. It was incredible, and I waited on lots of celebrities and um it was. I felt very fortunate to have the job because it was. They were, they were tough positions to get, and we made you know three hundred, five hundred dollars in cash
2: a night, which was great because I had to pay rent yeah. and my bills and buy my. I rent. remember. I remember when Boudoir opened, and it was like a huge yep. success.
3: Yes, exactly. So Stephen was a very big deal, and. Learning, um, you know, waiting tables. And I think everyone has these formative experiences. It doesn't have to be for a famous tour, right? You could be lifeguarding or scooping ice cream or nannying or whatever it is. You know, these formative experiences teach us so much. And for me, you know, waiting tables taught me how to multitask. It taught me how to command a room. It taught me how to sell. Literally all the things I do now, 20 years later on social media, I learned waiting tables. Um, so for me, whenever someone talks about their first jobs or experiences, when they hang their head and say things like, "Well, I just waited tables," or "I was just a lifeguard," I always say to them, "That story, you know, all the things that I learned." And if you don't have pride in your work, who's
2: going to? And so for me, it's about oh, that, no. you know, mining. Yep, I know. On that note, I'm gonna on that note, I'm gonna be the professional interrupter here. We gotta to go to a quick commercial. So sure. we we did warn you, I'm just giving you a heads up. So no problem. We'll be right back. You're listening to Leadership Development News.
0: The boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
4: IC Tech, like the hard working men and women that get up every day and do their job, the ones that stop at nothing to make sure that it's done right. It's not just an effort, it's not just know how, it's a way of life. IC Tech has been with you since 1998. And with the veteran community being behind you, we understand. With quality, with passion, we follow you in this way of life. Icy Tech. For those who get it. Icy Tech is a proud sponsor of the Emotional Brilliance Academy, where e-learning is leading edge.
5: How can you be brilliant in the moment given the daily challenges you face at work and home? How can you enhance your strengths and limit your weaknesses? Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler's mission is to help people be the best version of themselves at work and at home with simple, trusted, evidence-based tips and tools. They have combined forces applying the powerful science of emotional and social intelligence with the latest in e-learning and AI technology to bring you the Emotional Brilliance Academy. Through the leading Emotional Brilliance Academy programs, they help everyday leaders like you balance your emotions to better connect with people, enhance top performance, lead your teams and your organization. The Emotional Brilliance Academy gives you a common sense approach to enhance your effectiveness and happiness both on and off the job sign up for the program enhance your skills and be your best self for a free trial go to freetrial.emotionalbrilliance.com that's freetrial.emotionalbrilliance.com eba is powered by fearless leaders group the h2c leadership foundation and true north leadership
0: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
1: Leadership Development News. We're interviewing Anna Papalia and her, her book, Interviewology, The New Science of Interviewing. And so, Anna, before we um, jump into the next question, which will zero in a little bit more on the, on your assessment and the four types, what's the best way that people can follow up with you? I don't think we have that, so.
3: Sure. Um, anyone can go to my website, theinterviewology.com, and if you're on social media, I share lots of free tips on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, you name it. Um, I have almost 2 million followers on social.
1: That's great. So, interviewology.com. Okay. And so, mm-hmm. you talked about that, how you would uh, put together a personality assessment. And uh, Kat and I, you know, we've been using them for years. I was saying during the break, you know, I love the Myers Briggs. Uh, as a kind of topology, but tell us a little bit about how you came up with this, and then you briefly said what the four were, I only we caught two of them to write down. So, yeah, tell us about the four styles.
3: Sure. It, it was my intent when I started collecting research at Temple to... Create a tool backed in research and science for both hiring managers and job seekers because I think it's very weird that the most important decisions we make happen in job interviews. Yet over ninety percent of hiring managers are never trained to interview, and we don't have any tools backed in research and science. In fact, Myers Briggs, which is globally a very um, you know popular personality assessment, is not backed in science whatsoever. So it was my goal first to start there, collect lots of research. So I talked to over 179 students uh, that first semester when I started collecting this research, asking them how they behave in interviews, what they prioritize. And then I wrote the first round of our personality assessment, and then I would have those same students sit with mock interviewers. Those mock interviewers would write down the impression that those students were making, and then we would line it up with the self-reported measurements from the students, the mock interviewers, and then what the assessment was producing. We did a couple iterations of that research, and then, of course, um, I would sit down and talk to all of those students about their interviewing experience, and that's how I developed the personality assessment. It took me about a year and a half. And then once I had the tool, I started using it in my interview skills workshops and classes. So students would take the assessment ahead of our workshop together. And then when they were in our workshop, we, they would discover their interview styles. And for me, you know, for the previous six, seven years, I had been giving students this handbook, like a textbook that I wrote myself to teach them. And they, they never read it, let's be honest. They never even opened it. They'd ask me questions. I'm like, it's in your handbook. And then when I started making the the handbooks customized to them, the results were about them, wouldn't you believe they used it and they felt validated? And they would raise their hand and they would tell me, this is exactly how I am in an interview. How did you do this? And that's when I knew I had something because that's where you have to start in any therapy or teaching someone something. You have to find out who they are and meet them where they are. And that was one key to this part of, you know, the ingredients that I was putting together and teaching people how to interview is first understand who they are because they have to understand themselves in order to get better, right? We all have strengths and weaknesses. So there are four interview styles, but in each interview style, there are two variations. So you can get one of 12 results. So there are charmers in interviews who are highly accommodating and highly extroverted, and charmers prioritize making a connection, and they want to be liked. Above all else, charmers want to be liked. They tell stories. They pay compliments. They enjoy opening up. And above and unlike the other three interview styles, charmers really like interviews. Then we have challengers. Mm-hmm. Challengers look at an interview like a cross-examination, and challengers want to be respected and heard. Challengers, whether they're job seekers or hiring managers, will ask really tough questions, and that's how they show that they're qualified. And then we have examiners. Examiners are introverted, and they're steadfast, and they don't open up easily, and they don't go into an interview wanting to be liked. They are the opposite of charmers examiners go into an interview wanting to be seen as qualified and this really shocked me because I'm a charmer in interviews so I didn't even think that there was this type of interview style. I didn't think anyone was going into an interview not thinking about being like because that was so one of my top priorities. So examiners are really focused on being seen as qualified. They talk about the, their experience or qualifications, data, metrics, projects that they've worked on. They're not going to open up and tell you you know, a story about their kids. And then lastly, we have harmonizers. And harmonizers look at an interview like a tryout for a team that they want to join. They look at interviews as if it is part of a collective. They're always talking about the department, the company. They want to fit in. They want to adapt. Above all else, they want to adapt, which is much different than their opposite, a challenger. Challengers want to be respected and heard. They put a stake in the ground. They're not afraid of asking tough questions. Harmonizers, total opposite. They would rather just not rock the
2: boat. Their worst fear would be de- being a devil's advocate, whereas a challenger, they relish in it. I I just love this. And, you know, one of the things that... Uh, I did a little research on before we got started were some of the things that you talk about with regard to these um, profiles. And you offer this for free at your website. It says take, you know, get your your profile. No, it's not. It's not free. Okay. So they go to the website and they go online. They fill out the questionnaire. And then what happens? So if you purchase my book, we do give a coupon code where you can take the assessment for half
3: off. You don't have to purchase my book. You could just take the assessment. So um, you would give us your information, obviously, and then it is just 20 questions. It's a rank order, and then you will immediately receive your results. It's a 40-page customized workbook that walks you through everything that you're doing right and wrong in interviews and the results. Are you a charmer, challenger, examiner, or harmonizer?
2: Okay. And um, can you tell us, yeah, what, what, um, so what, what's the process after you take it? Because I see you have one for hiring managers and you have one for the person who's the interviewee.
3: Yeah, so depending on where you are, if you're looking for a job, you could take the job seeker assessment. If you're a hiring manager looking to level up your interview skills, you can take the hiring manager one. I teach lots of corporate hiring managers and work with organizations to teach all their hiring managers how to do this using this framework. It just depends on the
2: the results that
3: you're going to get, meaning your interview style. If you took the assessment and it determined you're a charmer, It's not gonna change if you're a hiring manager, right? The color of your eyes or your level of introversion doesn't change whether you're a job seeker or a hiring manager. So your interview style is the same, but the workbook that you would receive would be different. So for hiring managers, it would teach you how to interview better. And for job seekers, it would teach you how to answer questions better, how to prepare for the interview process. We give thank you letter templates and questions to ask when you receive an offer. It's 40 pages, so it's very comprehensive. So once you receive the workbook, you can work through it and learn how to prepare for your interviews. And then now since my book came out last week, you can also get my book, which outlines all of the interview styles in detail, the strengths and weaknesses sections and sections on how, you know, a job seeker charmer comes across versus a hiring manager charmer and then tips on how to connect with people in interviews authentically.
2: So, one of the questions I, I have for you, Anna, is you talk about um, the things that you can do to make sure your interview um, is a success and, you know, how not to bomb. And um, is that all based uh, on, on the report? Do you have that in the report or is that just your summation of uh, your experience?
3: Well, I think... Number one, like I said earlier, an interview is a set of questions about you. In this case, we're talking about job seekers. So the number one most important thing that you should do is get to know yourself. That's why I wrote a personality assessment dedicated to people, helping people understand themselves better, right? So you can answer questions better. ahead of a job interview, you should be able to answer, tell me about yourself. Why do you want to work here? What are your strengths and weaknesses? And why should I hire you? It shouldn't be the first time you've ever heard those questions in an interview. And I think it's very helpful if you think deeply about who you are and wrestle with some of these questions ahead of an interview. Preparation is the most important part. And I have found that some people do the wrong prep. They spend a lot of time researching the company. Like 80% of their time, they're just like, they've memorized the company's website. Like the company doesn't need you to regurgitate their website. They know their mission and values. They don't know about you and they want to know about you in the interview. So that's really important in the interview process that you spend a lot of time <coughs> thinking deeply about these questions.
1: So, Love it. Anna, it's pretty uh, pretty uh, amazing what you were able to put together, especially how I'm impressed that you have a 40-page report that, uh, you know, people can look at, you know, around the self-awareness. Uh, Kat and I, you know, are uh, deep in the emotional intelligence world and, and. Self-awareness is always the first place to start, so it's nice to be able to see that. And then, what you're saying, Um, when you think about the interviewing styles, um, what what have you what have you learned or discovered that was maybe most surprising about that?
3: Well, like I said earlier, I think the most surprising thing is that there wasn't. You know, some people will ask me, you know, what's the best style there There isn't one style. It's not like I'm coaching everyone to turn into harmonizers or charmers. no, that's that's not that's not the the lesson here. I think for me, I learned that we all have the capacity to do this, and it's about really better understanding ourselves. For me, that was really a huge light bulb moment. And then from there, it was quite surprising to me that there were people that went into interviews so different than I do. For example, examiners. I'm a charmer. My opposite an examiner never goes into an interview wanting to be liked. That was shocking to me. Like, not even joking. For a couple of weeks, I walked around in a daze on campus, like, when I'm collecting this research, like, this, this has to be wrong. There's no way, right? There's people that go into interviews not thinking about being liked. And I kept interviewing my students. I kept, you know, asking people these questions. And it was true over and over again. That's not everyone's experience. So interviewing isn't a universal experience. You know, people go into it with their own special perspective and style. And I categorize them using these four primary styles, 12 variations, to hope, hopefully give us a more formalized language to better understand this. Because in my experience, thousands of interviews with hiring managers and debriefs, they would say things like, nah, I didn't really like that candidate. I hope now that we have a language to talk about this. So instead of I didn't like them, instead it's, you know, I think my wires got crossed. You know, that candidate came in guns blazing, asking a a ton of tough questions before they built rapport. I'm a harmonizer. I don't really like that. That person must have been a challenger. Isn't that a more productive conversation mm. than, I didn't like them?
1: Right. So what I like well, about this is kind of... that bias, right? It, yeah. Kat, I was going to say the exact same thing. It kind of debunks the bias, uh, the unconscious bias.
3: Well, and I think, you know, bias is so pervasive and it gets a bad rap, right? Like when we use our heuristics, which are basically shortcuts in our brains, it helps us most of our lives. You know, how are you going to drive to work? What sweater are you going to wear with those jeans? How do you take your coffee? We all use shortcuts all the time. But the problem is when it comes to making complex decisions about hiring someone and making decisions about humans, we can't use heuristics. We can't use shortcuts. that gets us into trouble. Mm-hmm. So we have to be more open-minded. And I was hoping to create a formalized language and write this book and have this assess personality assessment tool to help us have this language because that is what I saw was the biggest problem in hiring. We simply don't have a language or tools to really understand this very difficult thing that we do. In fact, what we do is we relegate it to be something that we should just figure out. How many times have you been told, ah, you'll just figure it out? You know, interviewing is like dating. Kiss a bunch of frogs, you'll figure it out. Well, (laughs) that's not actually how it works at all. It's incredibly expensive. Hiring managers make really bad mistakes. Uh, They're creating cultures that are skewed, that are not biased. We need a better way to do this. And 90% of hiring managers are never trained to interview and I, I found that astounding. I find it unbelievable, but it's true, right? That that you you may get promoted and be a subject matter expert and excellent at your job, and then all of a sudden you're tasked with creating a department or you know hiring a team, and you're like, I I, I don't know how to do this. I know I know how to do my job. I don't know how to hire, right? So we need a tool. We need help. Um, that that is based in in science and has created a formalized language to give us some a way to talk
2: about this experience rather than so Anna, just figure it out I want so on um, the thing that I'm um, curious about is Raleigh and I as you as you know I'm a behavioral scientist rally's a psychologist um, when 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 you say there's nothing that exists um, or you know there's nothing that Exist that you are thinking is, um, you know, kind of up to par for what we need. Uh, One of the things that that Relly and I use uh, and that many organizations use um, is a very well researched tool called the EQI 2.0. And one of the things that I do in law enforcement, particularly in the military, is I interview and promote for, or help others interview and promote for, uh, a type of a style or behaviors uh, that are necessary for their particular role, and we use uh, the EQI 2.0. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'd like to dig a little deeper into um, what was it about existing tools and existing assessments mm-hmm. Um, that you found were lacking uh, that wouldn't provide the right kinds of information. So we'll be right back. Don't go away. We're having an engaging conversation here with the author of Interviewology. We'll be right back.
0: to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
5: how can you be brilliant in the moment given the daily challenges you face at work and home how can you enhance your strengths and limit your weaknesses dr greenberg and dr nadler's mission is to help people be the best version of themselves at work and at home with simple trusted evidence-based tips and tools They have combined forces applying the powerful science of emotional and social intelligence with the latest in e-learning and AI technology to bring you the Emotional Brilliance Academy. Through the leading Emotional Brilliance Academy programs, they help everyday leaders like you balance your emotions to better connect with people, enhance top performance, lead your teams and your organization. The Emotional Brilliance Academy gives you a common-sense approach to enhance your effectiveness and happiness both on and off the job. Sign up for the program, enhance your skills, and be your best self. For a free trial, go to freetrial.emotionalbrilliance.com. That's freetrial.emotionalbrilliance.com. EBA is powered by Fearless Leaders Group, the H2C Leadership Foundation, and True North Leadership.
4: ICTIC. Tech. Like the hard working men and women that get up every day and do their job. The ones that stop at nothing to make sure that it's done right. It's not just an effort. It's not just know-how. It's a way of life. ICtech Tech has been with you since 1998. And with the veteran community being behind you, we understand. With quality, with passion, we follow you in this way of life. Icy Tech, for those who get it. Icy Tech is a proud sponsor of the Emotional Brilliance Academy, where e-learning is leading edge.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
1: Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We are talking with Anna Papalia. Uh, Interviewology is the name of her book, but also her website if you wanna uh, zero in on taking the uh, tests around the four types. And before we went to break, Kathy was talking about the EQI, kind of a well-normed assessment, you know, that it has been used for selection. We've uh, uh, put that into practice almost all the time. Uh, so, say a little bit about kind of what you saw that is maybe missing in what is already out there, and then the kind of attributes um, that of your assessment.
3: Sure, I don't want to confuse my assessment with pre-employment assessments. Mine is not a pre-employment assessment. I'm not assessing whether or not someone's going to be a good account manager or vice president of such and such. That's not what the goal is. I an in interview a job interview, is an artificial event where someone has power and the other person doesn't and wants something. The only other thing you can sort of equate it to is dating or sales pitch. That would be very similar. So what we are assessing in my scientifically valid interview style assessment is we are assessing how you respond in that artificial moment. What do you do? Do you become more accommodating? Do you become more steadfast? Are you introverted or extroverted? You know, this is linked to aspects of your personality rather than um, whether or not you're prepared for the interview. You know, what I found in my research is that my students and my clients interview depending more on their personality and less on you know how much they want the job. So our interview style assessment is assessing that, how they are in an interview. Whether you're a job seeker or a hiring manager, your interview style doesn't change. The position of power doesn't change your interview style. Like I said before, your eye color isn't going to change if, you are, if you're doing certain things, you're acting differently. We have these stable aspects of our personality, and that's what part of how you create personality assessments, you test on some of these stable aspects of someone's personality?
2: no, I'm glad that you clarified that. Um, that's really helpful. One of the things that I was saying when we when we went to break uh, is uh, a book that I wrote in two thousand and three with Marshall Goldsmith and Alistair Roberts and my Huchan. Chan. Um, on global leadership next generation, we came up with five key traits that have now come to pass 20 years later from our work. And so we're doing a second release of the book for the 20th anniversary edition. And I think one of the things that really strikes me, which I find um, really helpful, is how somebody in the future, who's now here trying to learn what you're talking about, needs to embrace in order to get the right talent into their organization and to be the right talent to be able to get into an organization and or to be acquired by an organization. So I think those are really helpful and um, just really like the idea of what you're doing here in terms of teaching people how to interview and teaching people how to be good interviewers. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I think think it's really important
3: Thank you. I I, think It's also important to note that we had over 10,000 respondents take this assessment, and it was scientifically validated by um, a third-party assessment organization who found that there was no bias in our data, right? So that means that not all African Americans interview the same way, that not all women interview the same way. And that's really important to me. It is important to me that this is scientifically sound, but more than that, that people are getting accurate results. And 99% of our respondents report and tell us that their results are them in interviews. That's really important. Now, we could have a much longer conversation. I could probably talk about this for hours. There are some people. There's about 17% of people in our respondents that tell us, yes, this is how I am in an interview. But you know what? I'm not like that outside of interviews. And that is fascinating to me. Well, why? Why do you change in interviews? Why do you, if you're an introvert, why do you turn off the volume? why do you change your personality? What is embedded in you that you think you can't be you and get hired? That's mm-hmm. really interesting to me. But, but a lot of our respondents tell us, yes, this is how I am in an interview. In fact, this is how, Oh, well, my husband would laugh if he read this, this is who I am. Um, but right. then there are these, you know, there are some people that are like, you know, I, I'm more of a harmonizer at home, but like I'm a charmer in interviews that that doesn't happen as frequently, but it, it, it's there and it's very interesting. And that's, that's a matter of personal congruence, right? That's congruency and personality when it comes to studying this. And that's a whole different, you know, animal that we could talk about. But I find that very fascinating, too.
1: Well, I think you really are adding a lot, and especially specifying what you said just earlier, is this is about how they do an interview. It's not about how you are maybe in other aspects of your life. But I think that's really helpful because I think the bias that we talked about, you know, without that self-awareness, which you talked about, People end up hiring people who are like them, and so then you get a lot of people who are more homogeneous versus heterogeneous, and, and we know just right. about how diversity how diversity is is needed and it will help for a top performing team. So, a, a question right. I have before exactly. we so to
3: the- in my in you know, my that. research and in my book, I outline some companies that I have consulted with, and we've tested all of their hiring managers. And I've tested some corporations that are totally skewed, where they have like 76% challengers. And my goal is to train mm. them on how to be more open-minded in the interview process. And that that data that's skewed also reflects their their ages, their races, their genders. It all is skewed. These are biased it's organizations. Also,
2: yeah. It's also their, their industries, right? Because I know from, your, from what you're talking about, having looked at data, that, you know, over decades, we know that engineering firms or utility companies are going to have a higher degree of individuals who are more like them. And this is what tank end on. You know, when you hire enough people who are like you, you don't get the diversity of thought and style, that gives you longevity or helps you with your efficacy. And as a result, mm-hmm. you're doomed. Um, so well, yes, <laughs> I, I yes. love it. It's, I it's, love it's, it, it, Anna.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it's twofold, right? It's twofold. One thing is that our brains tell us that we should be more comfortable in groups that are like us. So if we're in a, a homogeneous group of people that are all the same age, gender, race, we think that, that we're going to be more creative and share more easily. But actually research keeps showing up that you don't, that you just overemphasize the things that you have in common. That's where groupthink comes from. So, if you want people mm-hmm. to be more creative in these environments, do brainstorming sections and and have innovative solutions, you have to have diversity. Add a young person, add a, a person of color, add a female to that room, and the the creative juices get flowing because people aren't over aren't talking about things that they they have in common. The their second point which mm-hmm. is really important. In our data, there, are, there is no, like, all engineers are examiners. In fact, we have a normal distribution, which was also pretty surprising to me, which I find great, right? You know, we might skew a little bit, like, two or three points over for if I'm, for example, I started out teaching risk management students and my actuaries, they skewed slightly to examiners or challengers, but not so much so where there were no charmers or harmonizers, And I spent a lot of time training for the last six years at a utility, and there is an equal number of of charmers and harmonizers. The problem is they're positively reinforcing what they're comfortable with, and that's that like-me bias. So
4: they continually,
3: in interviews, hire more challengers and more examiners, and that's what we need to train hiring managers to do, is to stay open-minded and realize, here's the kicker. Interview performance is not the best predictor of whether or not someone's going to be good at the job. And so we need to back away from this idea that you have to perform a certain way in an interview, you're not going to be good at the job, because we already know that that's not really how it works. So if we can be more open-minded and back away from this, I didn't like them, I didn't click with them, they're not going to be a good culture fit, all of those things I just said are just guises for biases and how we create these skewed cultures that, to your point, make – it's just a lot of groupthink and thanks these organizations yeah. because of the homogeneous groups that they're creating.
2: Love it.
1: So, Adam, we're going to probably end in a, in a moment or two. What what would be a tip for people interviewing? How should they prepare? Maybe kind of give us your kind of highlight.
3: For hiring managers? Um, no, for, My number I one for
1: tip – would for people – Yeah, go ahead.
3: Uh, For hiring managers, you know, the number one problem of hiring managers is they talk too much, almost always. They go into the interview and they say things like, thank you so much for coming in. Let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about the company. Let me tell you about the department. Let me tell you about the projects that you're going to work on. And they talk for 30 or 40 minutes. And then they look at the candidate and they're like, does that sound good to you? And the candidate just nods and smiles. And they're like, great, you got the job. And they never interview that person and then three, six months later, they're like, I don't know why this person didn't work out. You know, according to the EEOC, an interview is a test and should be conducted like a test. And almost all the time, hiring managers are not testing candidates in interviews. This is the there many, many charmers. many charmers. Yeah, charmers, harmonizers are not good at that. Examiners have a tendency to, to just hold back and wait it out. Challengers are great at that as hiring managers, but they can go overboard. They can just ask so many questions and be so tough that they,
2: sure they have a different problem. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's what my number one tip for hiring managers is to not talk as yeah. much. Okay. And for the for the person coming, the job seeker. Don't tell them what they want to hear.
3: My number one tip for job seekers is and this is even harder for charmers, right? Because that's that's how we're we're, we're we're, we're we're made in my DNA I want someone to like me so what do you mean I'm not supposed to tell them what they want to hear but I have found that it, it is probably the number one thing that gets people into trouble they either they're so worried about not getting the job or not getting that validation that they'll say anything to get their foot in the door but that's just going to get you into a bad job it's not about finding just any job it's about finding the right job and the way you do that number 1 is to develop your self-knowledge. That's why I created a personality assessment to help you better understand how you are in this artificial interaction, this interview. How do you react when someone mm-hmm. has something power on the line, a job or whatever? Do you become more accommodating or do you become more steadfast in digging your heels? Getting to know yourself so you're really prepared mm-hmm. in that moment. Everyone's nervous in job interviews, even hiring managers. You're no no one is never going to be not nervous in a job interview, but you can decrease the anxiety if you know who you are, and that becomes sort of your North Star, understanding yourself and being able to confidently say, like, I'm not a team player, you know, I'm I'm a leader, or I'm a this, and, and, and owning that, it will save you
2: so many problems in the long run. Could not agree with you more. Relly, any, any final thoughts? Yeah, this is
1: fascinating. I would say to people on both ends, it, it aligns with Kathy and I talk a lot about self-awareness, knowing yourself, and here's a tool to know yourself in the interviewing process. Are you an interviewing manager? Are you a interviewee? And it does sound like if you go to uh, interviewology.com, you can get a lot more information on that.
2: Uh, and, and I would tell people, please follow Anna on, on Instagram and LinkedIn. Her stuff is very rich, very data driven, and just great advice. Uh, from, I guess, as you have termed yourself, Anna, the red, red hair child, which I love because you're absolutely gorgeous. But, um, I look forward to having coffee with you sometime in Philly. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to tune up your leadership here with us on Leadership Development News. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Thank
1: you. Take
0: care. You've been listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers, with your hosts, Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you gain some great ideas and inspiration on how to elevate your leadership skills. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern time and 9 a.m. Pacific time right here on the Voice America Business Channel.